90% Hello and welcome to 90% Hits, a podcast about the number one singles in Australia throughout the 90s. My name is Danny Yao and with me as usual is Tim Coyle. <laughs> Casey Atkins. Good evening, everyone. And down the line from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. Hey, baby. <laughs> you cannot see this because it's a podcast, but Tim Byron is looking very relaxed on our Skype screen. He's on the sofa. He's lying back. He's growing a beard. It is definitely the holidays for us. He needs a velvet jacket and a big medallion. Yeah, it, is, yeah. Yeah, it does require some velvet. Oh, we're just putting off the inevitable because <laughs> the inevitable is not good. Uh, or maybe it is. It's up to you to, to, to be the judge. But we will be talking about another five singles that got to number one in Australia uh, in 1998. We are at the end of 1998, and we're almost at the end of the 90s. Uh, so let's not delay any longer and get straight into it. Our first song of tonight was number one for five weeks uh, from the 2nd of August 1998, and this is The Goo Goo Dolls with Iris. The Goo Goo Dolls, number one in 1998 with their song Iris uh, for five weeks in 1998. Tim Coyle, why don't we start with you? Must we? <laughs> How do you feel about this song? Uh, it sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, at the, at the time, this was kind of... It, we spoke a couple of episodes ago about how I'd begun to tune out at the charts and that we're, we're kind of into uncharted territory here, so as to speak, <laughs> in that um, I, I start seeing these songs and going, really? What what does that go like? Or things like that. Mm. But uh, not this one because it was yeah, everywhere. Right. And um, the, the hype around it and uh, I guess the attempt to build the Goo Goo Dolls up as Nirvana <laughs> on behalf of a lot of people surrounding it. Um, was completely out of proportion to to the the merits of the song, and yeah, it's just gotten worse over the years, hasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, it's just this- <laughs> like how he has to say, isn't it? Hasn't yeah. it? Like he's just like bringing us along here, just trying to get everyone else into the into the mood. It, it's just this big purple operatic bag of shit, and. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's he's kind of he's got the Dave Perna voice going on with it, the the really pretentious strings and mm. um, yeah, and the fact that that uh, you you've got a lot of publications such as Rolling Stone and um, like Billboard and MTV 
will often award this as the greatest song of the 90s or really? of the, of the 20 yes it has actually gotten plaudits it, it got nominated lines. for grammys and stuff yeah, like that. yeah well it definitely uh, I like think it won. her yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's the thing listening to it it's like oh, well okay i can see why it got to number one and why a certain subset of listeners would be quite attached to it but to hone in on this song above all the others that we've covered and just, as I say, hone in on it and identify this as what quality are they, they, what quality is it that makes this better than anything else we've covered? Because I don't see it and I'm not hearing it. And it's almost it's that arbitrary thing we spoke about the other week when we were talking about Third Eye Blind. You just picked one, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> of these kind of college rock acts. And it's almost like that. It's like, well, the song we want to be the best one of the 90s has to be alternative. Uh, just give it to the Goo Goo Dolls. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> Casey. I, I didn't have much of a problem with this song at the time. Um, it didn't didn't bother me. I don't. I didn't love it, but I didn't have any problem with it when I heard it. And I heard it a lot. Like you said, Tim, it was around a lot. And I saw them play it on probably both Hey Hey It's Saturday and Recovery. You know, it was like one of mm. those kind of things where they did the promo tour in Australia and just ended up fucking everywhere. Um, and they were one of those bands that I, I remember then hearing at the time, like, this is their what, you know, I don't know fifth or sixth record that this comes from like yes. this band have got a past and and bizarrely enough they've got music that comes after this as well this is the only thing i know by the goo goo dolls i didn't mind at the time i listened to it this week and just thought you know what the idea in it like the the, the little hook is fine for what it is but that's all it's got the verse is just the chorus sung an octave down it's all it is. Like, okay, mm. you got a good chorus. That's great. Fine. Excellent. Good on you. You, you got to give us more than that, guys. Come on. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's, <laughs> it's a pretty it's a pretty poor showing. And, yeah, the strings are just, like, sickly. And so you don't like it anymore? No, no. God, no. No. And I didn't love it then, but I didn't have a problem with it so much then. But, yeah. Tim Byron. Well, yeah, listening to this uh, this week, like, I, I listen and I'm like, oh, that mandolin thing at the night, at the front, that's really nice. And like I was like, oh, maybe this isn't as bad as I remember it being. And then the verse kicks and then in. It was all uphill from there. <laughs> yeah, and then the verse kicks in. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, this. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, it's um yeah, it has that nice sort of REM-ish kind of mandolini kind of thing. And then yeah, it, it all goes to shit. Uh, but yeah, as a song, like I, I agree with Casey that it's it's pretty repetitive in that kind of way. But I think like the the I suspect the reason it is like gets on those lists is because it's it's in a way like. You, in one way, you could use the word perfect, and another way, you could use most stereotypical. And like, depending on yeah. how you see these things, like they're the, it's one or the other. It's either like just stereotypically and obviously boring, or it's perfect, because it's sort of the perfect slash stereotypically boring '90s alt rock power ballad. Like yeah. you know, those kind of like. When I say alt-rock, I mean, like the Bushes and Collective Souls of the world, and like the kind of bands that came after grunge. That kind of like late 90s uh, alt-rock band, they always had that power ballad when they were trying to get onto actual 
um, you know, they're trying to get onto actual kind of chart pop radio and they'd have a go at it. And so you had like Silverchair doing Cemetery and you had Bush doing Glycerine and you had Collective Soul doing The World I Know and et cetera, et cetera. And this is the, Ir- the Iris was the Goo Goo Dolls version and they were the one who just nailed it because they took this sort of formula of like, you know, you meant to have those cell- cellos at the, um, at the start of the song that are kind of doing the bass part and all that kind of stuff. They took the formula and um, and they perfected it for getting onto the radio, uh, or they, they made the most obvious, boring version of this thing that you could possibly do, depending on your perspective. And I'm on the obvious, boring perspective, but I can see how you could see this as the perfect version of that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, to me, it's it's just so trying too hard to be epic, and there's that kind of... You know, it's it's trying to be too like you know have, have like lots of portentousness in there, and instead of portentous, it just becomes pretentious. Did you remember this song from back in the day, Tim? Oh, of course. It was inescapable, yeah. one way or the other. Uh, but um, yeah. but yeah, I wonder if anyone knows who he is these days. <laughs> um, so the thing that we dodged around a little bit. I mean, okay. So I remember the song back in the day. Um, the Goo Goo Dolls come from that same world as The Replacements and Soul Asylum and those sort of bands. In fact, the Goo Goo Dolls toured with UMI yep. in the early 90s. They're, they are uh, thanked on Hourly Daily, on the um, the credits of Hourly Daily, and it, that always <laughs> just like... Seems strange, right? Yeah. yeah. Look at just after Iris came out, they were interviewed by Rolling Stone, and in it, Resnick says all the right things and drops all the right names at Paul Westerberg and REM, which who is he what, admired greatly. Which is why the critics liked them, right? right? Because they were that band. And but this is a shocking song. <laughs> it is just shocking, isn't it? It's just there is, um, the the one the thing that occurred to me listening to it this week. Obviously, I hated it back in the day, and. It was, you know, much like R.E.M., who we've talked about a lot in terms of that career path for bands that just sold out from the indie labels and went to the majors, and then A&R guy came along and wrote a massive hit for them. But interestingly enough, A, he did write this song. So it wasn't like, you know, someone told him to go and work with one of those Jack Joseph Diane Warren? kind of guys. And, yeah, we're done. <laughs> yeah. But, um... There it is again. Yeah. Like... It's A&R to death, isn't it? And the other thing I, I think about is there was a hit... God, Tim, was it... Tim Byron, was it last year? Fun, We Are Young? Yeah. That song, where the story behind that song was apparently this band who was just a round pop rock band. The guy basically had this chorus and, and sort of met up with this big-name producer in the bar, and the producer basically gave him 10 minutes, and what he did was sing just the chorus to him in the bar. Mm. And he went, yeah, I can do something with that. Leave the rest to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm. I'll write the verses. I'll do all that sort of stuff, figure out the sound. you got a hook. Let's do it. And that's what this song is, right? Yeah. Yeah, but not even, but not even somebody else going, I'll write the verses, because it, it is the same section. Like, the, it yeah. is the same yeah. melody line repeated. And I can't even remember whether there's any kind of middle eight or bridge or anything to that. No, there's, there's no a... solo either. It's just the chords. Right. Mm. And it's like, there's no guitar hooks. Mm. Well, there's the big string. Yeah, there's sticks. a... Yes. That kind of bit there. The very big dramatic... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. ...accents on that, which, yeah, I think we've kind of pointed out a couple of times already, they are incredibly pretentious. But it does that same thing as... 
you talked about the Brian Adams song where you go, oh, it's over. Oh, fake ending. And then, oh, <laughs> and then, and then it just comes again. <laughs> and you go, oh, oh, no. <laughs> so, we... Uh, look, I don't know how much we have to say about the Hugo Dolls, but Casey brought up an interesting point, and I'm interested with it, in that... Obviously, this was, and, and I think most of us brought it up, that this was kind of one of those songs Yes. Yep. in that time. Mm. And I would put something like, say, Closing Time by Semisonic, yep. or One Headlight by The Warflowers, and all those sort of songs in there. Where do you rate it even on that scale? Low. Yeah, mm. but it's, it's much worse than One Headlight and Tim Closing Time. Yeah. I mean, where... Closing times are great. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, well, I guess that's my point. Whereas, like those other songs have grown in stature for me. Mm. Like I just go, okay, yeah, they were kind of probably a and r to death and a hit yeah. done by expensive but producers. But there's a degree of craft in those songs that is not here. But I think the th- yeah, I think the thing with um with something like closing time or one headlight is that. Those are kind of upbeat kind of songs. Like, this is a different sort of... Sure. Like, this is like a power ballad. This is like an alt-rock power ballad. Like, they've taken that kind of metal power ballad formula, put a bit of, like, angsty vocal and put a bit of, like, um, you, you know, sort of angsty lyrics and things like that. It's like a power ballad with a bit more sort of 90s angst, whereas something like mm. One Headlight or, or Closing Time is more of a... It, it's, it's more of a sort of straight pop song. It's a bit more upbeat and it's a bit more positive. And, um, yeah, like, to, to me, like, this is more in the world of, like, stuff like Glycerine or The World I Know, like, that kind of, like, very angsty and very kind of slow ballad kind of thing that's trying to be the big thing that they play at the end of the, at the end of their set when they play it live and that everyone sings along to <laughs> and, you know, that they, yeah, they yeah, get out yeah, their yeah. collective angst together. Um, I think, I think Glycerine's yeah, probably a pretty good reference. Yeah. yeah. It's that yeah. kind of pained capital R romantic thing going yeah. on there and the lyrics are so stalkery that it's it's really creepy I didn't even get that far as listening to the are the lyrics there, about someone called lyrics. Iris did anyone bother doing that bit of research <laughs> no that's the only explanation I can think of but. There's, there's nothing in the lyrics the lyrics are so banal that they could just be they're all used in other songs yeah. I'm sure and I yeah. give up forever <laughs> to touch you because I know that you feel me somehow like I guess I guess the thing with this song is that it is the um it was written for the City of Angels soundtrack. Yeah, I wanted to touch on this briefly. Has anyone seen the film? No. No, but I mean remember when Nicolas Cage was considered a leading man? <laughs> <laughs> Think about that, listeners. Think about that. On to our second song of tonight, which was number one for just one week on the 6th of September 1998. This is Lighthouse Family with High. When you're close to tears, remember Someday it'll all be over One day we're gonna get so Yeah. 
And that was Lighthouse Family with High Number One for one week in 1998. Casey Atkins, why don't we start with you? I think this is one of my most hated songs in the history of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I'm like, and I thought that at the time. That this is not in retrospect. This is not just listening to it this week. This is like at the time I heard this, and I had so much anger for the fact that this was in the world back then. <laughs> um, and, like, I don't think, like, I don't sort of in general think like that so much these days, but listening to it this week, I was like, oh, yes, this. <laughs> that guy's voice, man. It's very it, particular, isn't it? It is. And, like, a lot of people have got particular voices. You know, the guy from Crash Test Dummies is a very particular voice. Like, a lot of people have very particular voices. Um, Paul McCartney has a very particular voice. This guy has a particular voice that makes me want to chuck stuff. <laughs> um, and no, nah, this, it's so uh, whiny. I find it whiny somehow. Um, and cloying and no, I, I just, I can't stand it. I'm actually really surprised that this was the one for the amount of times that I heard it back then. I'm surprised that this was the one that was only number one for one week and the Goo Goo Dolls was for five weeks. Um, because they played the Goo Goo Dolls on Triple J and stuff as well. So I'm surprised that, you know, so that would have been, you know, I knew I heard that one a lot as well, but I thought that was mainly on Triple J and stuff, but but this one was just everywhere and I just, oh, man, I just couldn't couldn't stand it for probably more reasons than I can think of now. But yeah, mainly just that guy's voice just going, no, no, no. Tim Byron. Not for me. Uh, it's surprising that, like, I'm surprised that Casey hated this guy's voice because, like, to me, it was just a nothing voice. Like, it wasn't a voice that struck me in any particular way. It was just, like, a, a voice that was a singer that was absolutely forgettable. So, yeah, so I'm surprised at that. Oh, well, but, um, yeah, like, you know, to me, like, this is kind of a song in the same world as, like, Desiree or Seal or something like that, and it's not even as memorable as they are, and they're not particularly memorable. So, um, yeah, to me... Um, I listened to this and yeah, like like Casey sort of said at the time, this sort of seems like it was everywhere, but I don't think I paid it any attention at the time. Like, I don't think I knew who it was by or what it was even called. Uh, it was just a song that I kept hearing and kept hearing. And so I never bothered to find out who it was by until relatively recently when I was like, oh, this is that song when I had to listen to it when we were listening to things for the podcast. And um, like a, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I gave um, Savage Gardens like truly madly deeply, like a whole bunch of shit for being like so incredibly poorly crafted. Like something about that song really rubbed me the wrong way in terms of the lack of craft. And this is a song that's kind of in the same genre, pretty much. It's the same kind of song, the same kind of thing that you get for um, for those kind of like easy listening radio stations. And to me, this is bad for the opposite reason. This is so crafted to within an inch of to within an inch of its life that it just kind of becomes music. Like it's just you know, yeah. It's like you can tell that when they were writing it that they were reading the songwriting for Dummies book, and um, yeah, yeah. So I listened to this and I'm just like, there is nothing in this song because they've just taken away any kind of individuality or soul. It's just so boring and nothing that you're just going to end up hearing it on easy listening radio for days on end because it's the kind of song that does that. So yeah, for me. Yeah, it's not something I like. I think I probably do like this more than the Goo Goo Dolls song when it comes down to it, but that's not hard. Tim Coyle. Yeah, Tim Byron's right. This is kind of the music that confronts you on 
the elevator trip to hell <laughs> when you're incarcerated at the end of it for punching someone in the face because this song came on. <laughs> it's, it's exactly what it is. It's just such a nothing, boring song. And it's one of those classic British pop songs that are just kind of cranked out and have no charisma and... It's an odd one, and... Yeah, Gary Barlow would have been very happy to have written this one. <laughs> yeah, and even even then, this is kind of a Gary Barlow B-side, yeah. if, if that. And, yeah, I, I think what you guys are saying, it just about it being everywhere, and it's so innocuous, and it's real... It's pretty classic mum music, I guess. Mm. It's like, if I think of the target audience of this song, I actually think of Ned Flanders. <laughs> and I was going to say I gave my, I give my mum more credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's it's kind of, it's actually, you know, it's, it's made for a demographic, not actual people. Right. And, yeah, a demographic as an abstract thing is someone who's actually shorn of all their particularities. And, yeah, it's just got nothing to it that's um we've spoken before about songs that have no personality or um or actual distinctiveness to them and we'll probably get onto that again later this afternoon (laughs) because the greatest perpetrator who ever lived is back in action but this song is is one of those you you kind of you get no sense of who these people are and what this relationship is and yeah and I, i think that kind of we've spoken about it before it makes it appealing for a lot of people because you can project anything onto it and this song is so bland you can project all sorts of things mm. onto it um but the actual song itself is it's it's such a nothing event yeah see i think i agree with casey more than more than tim byron and tim coyle on this which is that this song isn't nothing in wallpaper it's actually actively bad and hurting me it's actively hostile it it is it is a hot war against taste um (laughs) it's terrible yeah it is terrible and banal and it just freaking shit and it's just like there was like you could put you know what we didn't even say this for the goo goo dolls but like you could put the verses in any order oh, and totally. the song would be the same. Yeah. Like, that is shit songwriting. Right. All right. Um, is it? The, yeah. Unless you're doing, like, a real... But you could say that about Bob Dylan, you know, like, you could say that about, like, Subterranean Homesick Blues. Yeah, but, okay, well, let's not go into that. <laughs> the, the, the art of a good grocery <laughs> list song versus whatever. But, like, um, still... The fucking just annoyingness of this guy's voice, which I hate. I hate the voice. Mm. It is seal. It is whatever it is. It well, is there's, a, there's uh, a degree of baby talk in the tone that he has. The, <sighs> that's yeah. so much. I'm, I, I can't even really. I think it's the... It just sounds whiny to me. I know I've said that six times. I'll say whiny again. <laughs> <laughs> How does it sound to you, Casey? No, I do, I, bit whiny. <laughs> Look, I mean, we were talking about why this was a hit. Look, I do understand that there is something about, if you can hit that sweet spot, which I call 8 to 80, if you can write lyrics so simple and that an 8-year-old and an 80-year-old can enjoy it, that is actually a powerful thing. And a good version of it, and, like, one of the best versions of it, is, like, My Girl. Right. Yeah. And this, and but, like, and then this is a shit version of it because they tried to be so simplistic that it's just shit. Yeah. Um, 
Oh god, the sentiment of it, just that, just fucking, oh yeah, let's all hold hands. It sounds like a cult. Well, when they when they say they're going to get so high and like you know the song is called high, like you you kind of half imagine that they're talking about marijuana. But what they're I think what they're actually talking about is like going to heaven with each other and spending eternity. Like we're going to get so high into heaven because we're going to be together forever. You know, Flanders. That's the thing, right? Like, I mean, even for for Third Eye Blind, we were saying how look, these guys. No, that's explicitly really about <laughs> drugs. <laughs> 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 they're smoking meth. <laughs> well, like, still, to some degree, it was like, we'll put this in there and we'll challenge people or whatever, and we know what that stuff is. And you kind of look at those guys and you go, yeah, okay, I get that you probably did this once. The Lighthouse family guys have never been in a room with marijuana. They've never been in a suburb with marijuana. <laughs> like, they're fucking just... Who are these guys? They're just like a couple of just... Oh, my God. They're... Uh, Oh, they're a duo. Yeah, they're a duo. It's, it's pair a, of boring Geordies. Yeah, pair of, yeah from Newcastle. On, yeah. Uh, and it is just soft rock at its worst. So, I don't know. Like, I, I, I would also say, just because to answer Tim Byron's point, that this is not better than Iris by the Goo Goo Tolls for me. This is... No. This is way worse. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, they're doing... Do, the, Offensive in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we say? There are so many ways to offend. Well, I mean, the question that has to be asked is then, what is your favourite Lighthouse Family song? <laughs> is it? Um, well, they had two singles that charted in Australia. They had this and they had Rain Cloud, which came after that, which I couldn't be fucked listening to, to be honest. Like, when I say I like this more than Iris, like, it's not by that much. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but well, but they had another um, yeah they had another album before this uh, that was quite a big hit in the UK but never sort of translated into Australia and so this was like their second album after they were kind of reasonably yeah, successful right. in the UK so I think this album was about as successful in the UK as the first one that this song is from and you know high was just the weird thing that happened in Australia and then we totally ignored them after that because is it. True that Australia was the only country this got to number one in. Yeah, we were. It was one of those things. <laughs> I like the fact that they did a comeback. Yeah, I know. I was just reading about that. And look, we're of course, the, they did a fucking comeback. We're kind of at the era of the bands that, if the bands that we're talking about at the moment haven't gotten back, didn't stay together, they probably did a comeback. Yeah. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. The um, yeah, the whole uh, years active, nineteen ninety three to two thousand and three, and then two thousand and ten <laughs> to present. Like that's so, such so a the, common thing. There you go, the pixies of Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Our third song of tonight was number one for nine weeks. Jesus. From the thirteenth of September, nineteen ninety eight, and this is Aerosmith with "I Don't Want to Miss a Thing." moment forever 
was Aerosmith with I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Tim Byron, let's start with you. That's one thing I want to miss. <laughs> this song. It's like three shitty power ballads in a row. Fuck. Mm. What, what the fuck was going on in 98? Like lots uh, of big movies, I guess. Yeah. But th- that's what does it because, yeah, that's why Iris is at the top of the charts and that's why this is at the top of the charts. I don't know what we can blame the Lighthouse family on. God, why do I get the feeling that song was used in, like, sliding doors or some shit like that? What, the Lighthouse? Yeah, <laughs> it probably, probably was. Is, right? yeah, sure. Anyway, Aerosmith, don't deny it anymore. Yeah. Tell us how you think. Aerosmith. So, yeah, to me, it's actually kind of fascinating listening to I Don't Want to Miss a Thing to see what a singer who has the kind of vocal qualities as Steve Tyler does with a Diane Warren song that sounds like every other fucking Diane Warren song. Like, you know, like, instead of, like, Brian Adams or Celine Dion or Michael Bolton or someone like that covering a Diane Warren song... You know, people who, those kind of people like Celine Dion and Michael Bolton have very sort of classically kind of trained voices in a way, and they've got the kind of voice that, you know, is going to like sing a note and put vibrato on it and stuff like that. Whereas Steve Tyler has the kind of voice where it's all about like him kind of doing vocal tricks. So he'll do things like, you know, at the end of like lines and things like that, that kind of like classic (laughs) sort of rock vocal kind of thing. Yeah, so listening to it today was a bit of a, a struggle because it's just kind of oppressively bad. Um, it, it's just, like, as a song, I can see what it does, and it does it well. Like, as a song, it works better than Iris. As It's trying to do basically the same thing. It's trying to be the big sort of soppy song from a movie that's a power ballad that's kind of done by a rock band. Like, it's, it's very similar to Iris in some kind of ways, but it does it a whole bunch better, I think. Like, I think there's more sort of musical substance in this than there is in Iris. And, um, but at the same time, like... Aerosmith, what are you doing? Yeah. Stop! And, like, you know, it, it killed their career because, like, you know, after this, they never had another single in the charts. Um, you know, and they had this... The, Aerosmith, I, I keep seeing... I, I look on eBay every so often and, like, you, you see sort of, like, lists of sort of things that are going for one cent. And one of the things that goes for one cent is Aerosmith had this album called Honkin' on Bobo. Yeah, uh, and it's like that was that was that the blues, um, yeah, and it had a yeah. harmonica on the on the cover with sort of lipstick on it, and but it's like, why would you call an album honking on Bobo? It's just like, no, don't do that, Aerosmith. So something, so this song sort of broke Aerosmith. It like something was just never the same after this, and and, and they they'd lost it, and so like you look at it, and basically pretty much every Aerosmith album that's been in the charts since this has been the greatest hits. Tim Kyle. Yeah, this is this is just kind of... It, it's rare you get this very distinct point where things just turn to shit. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's a gradual decline. And, you know, Aerosmith managed to do it in one fell swoop. Largely because, hey, we've got this song by Diane Warren. Yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> I mean, who does that? <laughs> oh, no, I think it's like, okay, back up, back up the truck full of cash. No, 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 left, left, <laughs> easy, easy. There it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Well, they, they had lots of cocaine and heroin to buy, yeah. surely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had child support payments mm. and rehab to pay for. You know, we all understand this. But, uh, <laughs> it's it's just such a... It's such a double-take moment when you kind of hear this, and you know, it's it's Aerosmith. You know, logically, that it's Aerosmith. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. You see the words, you see the word Aerosmith, and you're like, okay, this can't suck too much, can it? And then, <laughs> then this place. And it's, yeah, it's just like Aerosmith, we've spoken about them before. 
and we'd kind of already covered. They'd been around forever. Episode one, I think, from memory. Was yeah. James yeah, Gunn yeah, on episode James one. James yeah. Gunn was at the start. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, we've come full circle in yeah, the we possible way. And, that, you know, if the 90s was a giant risk board, Diane Warren's taken over the whole thing. <laughs> and, yeah, we, we, now, we now just all live under the fucking horrible dictatorship of Diane Warren. And, yeah, the, this... As Tim Byron says, there's a hunger going around for these power ballads at the time, and particularly we're still on the film soundtrack thing. Yeah, it's still a pretty yeah. significant, significant thing, and it must be said from an outrageously awful film <laughs> in and of itself. Um, and yeah, it's it's just it's interesting that that still holds so much sway that a song from a movie getting to number one, it was kind of a fait accompli at the time, yep. whereas nowadays... It's not a thing. It just, yeah, it just doesn't mm. happen in the same way. So, yeah, the, there was that aspect to it, which explains it getting to number one, and, yeah, it has all those kind of nice treacly sentiments in it as well. That's that's another explanation, but I don't know. Kind of the housewives buying this surely they saw the word aerosmith and were like oh whoa the guy with the big mouth and <laughs> singing about guns and stuff we can't buy that but no casey atkins yeah i don't mind it <laughs> <laughs> casey and i had a high five there yeah <laughs> um I I enjoy how stupid this is. Like, I enjoy listening to it because it's fucking ridiculous. Like, it is absolutely fucking ridiculous. And it is beyond the point of being able to muster any dislike for it. So we're back to so- Nicolas Cage in a bear suit. <laughs> <laughs> right, and, and I gotta tell you... Did we ever this- leave that <laughs> and, and this is one of those things where, like, it do- you listen to it and it doesn't need to be Aerosmith in any way, right? Like, there's no fucking guitar playing in it. No. There's no... Yeah. Um, like, I, yeah, his voice is there, but it doesn't... It's not showing you what that band can do. Oh, Casey, can I interrupt for a second? Just go, but isn't it great that it is Aerosmith? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is a stupid song. And let's face it, I'm not a big Aerosmith fan. I like them when they're at their stupidest. Like, they are a ridiculous bunch of people in that band. You look at those guys, they're idiots. Like, and I love the fact they're idiots. Look at that guy. I heard this great, I heard this great story once about, um, uh, another podcast that I listened to, an American one. Um, one of the guys was saying that he was somehow backstage at an Aerosmith concert, but not backstage. He was like, in the venue when they were setting up an Aerosmith concert. So they weren't there. It was before sound check. And I don't know why this guy was there, but um, he was like, (laughs) they, they, one of the roadies wheeled out this like huge road case kind of thing. And he was like, Oh, this is going to be some like awesome vintage guitars. And and, like, this was a massive, massive road case, right? This is going to be some vintage guitars or what am I going to see? This is going to be awesome. Open it up. Just Steve Tyler's hats. (laughs) (laughs) so so as long as it wasn't human trafficking that's fine (laughs) but there's this there's this thing about this song where it's one of those things that um in a supermarket once about three years ago (laughs) this was playing and um joe was singing along with it in that kind of way that you do with the songs that are playing on the supermarket um, 
and it got to the chorus and it got to the don't want to miss a thing hook and I sang the harmony over the top of it yeah. and it cracked the heart that they don't want to miss yeah and it cracked her up like nothing else ever has and so from then on it's just been that song that I've always just enjoyed on that level that like this is fucking ridiculous on so many levels and I love it because of it yeah I'm Jamie? with you. It's a royale with cheese, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it is. Like, I lo- like, Tim Burrow said it before that. Come on, Aerosmith. I have no credibility for Aerosmith. I want them to be Kiss. Yeah, they are Kiss, aren't they? I would love that. Like, too stupid. And the fact that these... Like, I don't know how you, how you feel about Aerosmith and how the listeners feel about Aerosmith. But these guys are idiots. They've freaking lucked into a career and, like, good on them. And then for them to just basically go, hey, this dickhead called Michael Bay wants to offer us a lot of money to do this <laughs> shitty song for his movie. Should we do it? Yeah, let's do it. Exactly. And, like, people people going, what on earth possessed them to do it? Fuck We all know what possessed them to do it. <laughs> and they were, like, a truckload of money and they were, like, Fuck it. Who yeah. gives a shit? They're exactly the band to do this. And also, like, talking about killing their career, gives a f- like, they can still sell out wherever they want to. Yes, they haven't had any singles in the charts, but that doesn't... They don't yeah. not gonna give a shit about and they, they that. they hadn't had a single in the charts probably since 93, right? Like, I mean... Right. So they... No, they, they had a single in 97 with a song called Falling in Love is Hard on the Knees. Oh, that, that was the first single from Nine Lives. And I remember yeah. that song oh, oh, that album. That's, that's great. Tyler's arthritis <laughs> is kicking in. But, you know, that's the thing, right? You know, they are a big, dumb, stupid rock band. And you know what? Can I, can I also say what I do know about Aerosmith? And I'm not sure if I'm the biggest Aerosmith fan in the room, but I have a couple of their records and whatever. Uh, this isn't much worse than crying. <laughs> yeah, know? I agree with that. Or crazy. Like, or... Do you remember crying? Crying because I met you Now I'm dying because I left you I don't know Your that, love is no. sweet Was Crying like the they... one that had Alicia Silverstone and uh, Liz Tyler in the video clip? Yes Sorry, I'm listening What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, they were in the video clip Before so, they were, yeah. That was like where they both sort of came to prominence Sorry, I went to set list FM. They still fucking play this song live. Oh yeah, of course they, do. they would. Fuck, of course they, they do. Fuck, fucking it's surprised. Their, it's their biggest song. It's their only US number one, right? So I'm really I, surprised they still play it. So I mean, of course they do. Like you know, they open up with "Eat the Rich" and they do "Loving in an Elevator" and they close with "Walk This Way." But they still fucking play this song. I'm that surprises me. Really? Because yeah. it's the only US number one. I mean, one of two. Number Who's ones walking Australia? away from an Aerosmith show though? Who goes to see Aerosmith <laughs> in 2013-14 and walks away from an Aerosmith show going, "Fuck! I can't believe they didn't play. Don't want to miss a thing. I'm so disappointed." Yeah, but but probably about half the audience me, who grew up with real? that song. Yeah, oh, definitely. It's a famous song. But, the, but if me and you got free tickets, imagine we didn't pay. Went to Aerosmith. And they did. Oh, that. I considered paying. We would freaking no, sing along to that song. <laughs> You'd be doing the high harmonies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> laugh. Like, it is a crowd pleaser now because it's so famous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing that, like, it gave them a new lease of life with a new bunch of fans who had no fucking idea who the fuck Aerosmith were. Like, you didn't need to know what, like, Love is an Elevator were, was. And, like, there would have been 13-year-olds who would have gotten into that song in 1998 and not had any idea who they were or that they'd been around for 25 years. Exactly. And I just really hope they didn't make it past the bouncer. So... Our fourth song of tonight was number one for just 
two weeks from the 15th of November 1998, and this is Bewitched with Rollercoaster. Be a, be Witched. Yes. <laughs> Asterix switched with Roller Coaster, number one in 1998. Uh, we're back around to Tim Coyle. Tim Coyle, how do you feel about Bewitched? Surprisingly little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so surprised. <laughs> you didn't buy this album the day it came out? No. no. <laughs> I don't remember this song very well at all uh, from the time. Uh, I guess maybe I heard it once or twice and got a fair idea of what was going on. I was like, okay, don't need to really tune in mm. to that again. And <laughs> uh, listening to it this week, this falling back into um, Lighthouse Family, there's so little to distinguish this <laughs> song. It's just, yeah, it's kind of, we've had two big power ballads and two really uh, anonymous pop songs that just have no actual merit or distinguishing features about them. This is just kind of such a banal girl group song. Mm. The lead singer's voice is so irritating. The, the hiccupy kind of thing that she's got going on, I really just wanted to kind of throw my speakers against the wall when I was hearing it. It's so irritating. It's such a transparent uh, girl group grab for cash kind of thing that we're riding on the coattails of stuff we've covered such as the Spice Girls mm -hmm. and All steps. Saints and Steps definitely <laughs> as well and yeah it's just this is such a commercial cash cow thing and look it succeeded so good on everyone and the other aspect to it is I think the, the two of the girls who were twins were the sisters of uh, one of the guys from Boyzone Oh, really? so, they are Irish and yeah. they, they mm. have that inflection think, in some of their songs. Yeah, and there's there's also the bit where, oh, well, we're Irish, so we need to throw a fiddle in there. <laughs> yes, that is the inflection I was talking yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. Which, which, which is kind of the point where, you know, my grandfather kind of river dances in his grave and flips over <laughs> and I go, well, fuck this shit, and actually did throw my speakers against the wall. So, you know... Uh, it's, it's pretty dreadful. Uh, Tim, before before I leave you, I just want to ask you a quick, quick question and we'll get back to this in a second. But um, this is November 1998. Would you have been studying for your HSC and stuff? Yeah, like? yeah, yeah okay. I would have been. Okay. So in, in which case, yeah, you're pretty tuned out from anything else going on at the time. Cool. 
Casey Atkins, uh, just before you start as well, you would have been in the same boat, right? We're at the same school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this passed me by completely. I don't, like, on so many levels. So what you just said is probably a pretty good point, that I certainly wasn't sitting down in front of Rage on Saturday morning going, so what's number one now? And I hadn't been doing that for years anyway, but even at, at this point, even less so. Um, I would have been listening to what I liked, you know, what I what I had sought out and to the exclusion of everything else and that probably would have just been UMI at this stage and, <laughs> and, and possibly even and probably, I don't know, the Super Jesus or some shit. Um, but this just, it was certainly not for me and I listened to it this week and I listened to it this week a couple of times and even now sitting here I can barely remember how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just there's nothing there's nothing going on there that sticks in my brain whatsoever and I listened to it a few times in order to try and think of a couple of things to talk about and i <laughs> sitting here now going, I can't even so I'm not going to waste time. Tim Byron. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Byron. Well, yeah, um, I was in year 11 rather than year 12 when this came out but honestly I have no memory of this song whatsoever from the time like uh, I maybe had heard it like once or twice maybe but I kind of actually don't think I did yeah. and like I was looking through the list of the songs we've covered and it goes back to like One in a Million by Euphoria like 92 where I've got like a song that I have very little memory of like like this one so yeah so I had obviously tuned out of pop music and I'm thinking about like late 98 in my head and by that stage, I was probably listening to stuff like Built to Spill and Godspeed You Black Emperor and things like that. I'd cross over into that kind of world. Do you remember Say La Vie by Bewitched? I remember that song existing, but I listened to that today and it, that was also pretty vague as well. So, right. obviously, I'd stopped watching Rage at this point. I wasn't listening to commercial radio, uh, the kind of chart pop that was doing that. And it's funny because, like... You know, I, I probably had stopped listening to watching Rage and listening to this stuff like probably a year before that. But I, I knew all the songs before this. Like I knew the Lighthouse song, Lighthouse Family one, and uh, I, I knew you know Iris right. and things like that. So so yeah. So this song obviously was like it was obviously like for a demographic that I was not not a part of. It was obviously something that was marketed to like shows that were aimed at like ten year old girls and stuff like that. And yeah, listening to this, one thing I did like about it compared to the last three songs is that it wasn't a fucking power ballad. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and so I listened to that, and it's it's pleasant enough. Like it's you know as, as a song, it's it's nice sounding. But yeah, like 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 Casey, like it's a song that I, I forget how it goes. Like I've listened to this song probably six or seven times over the course of the last few days, and and I I can't remember how it goes. It's a bit like insensitive by Jan Arden. Who? I look for me. I I guess. Um. I I think. This song suffers a bit from the little sort of uh, Dr. Jones thing of this happened to be the one that charted, but the big Bewitched song was C'est La Vie. That was the one that I remember. No, I don't remember that. Yeah, uh, that was their first single that got to number six in the Australian chart. <coughs> but that was a number one in the UK. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and in the UK. And, and that, was, that was the introduction of Bewitched. And I was probably working in a record store by this time. Like, it was, I remember this okay. sort of happening. So, uh, and I remember C'est La Vie. So what, you got to number six, did you say? Like, yeah. Yeah, so, but, like, just by the nature of the fact that it's a band's, or a group's first single that, you know, it was interesting. So, I remember that. This song, listening to it, I had brief memories, but, yeah, um, it was okay. I didn't really hate Bewitched at the, in the, in the time. I, I have to say, I didn't really hate any of this stuff at the time, like, 
it was okay. It mm. wasn't my bread and butter. But like when it comes to the Spice Girls and Sugar Babes and Atomic Kitten and stuff like that, I've listened to it nowhere. Yeah, yeah, it's not for me. But yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's not for me. But I understand it. And maybe if I was a twelve-year-old girl, that would be awesome. But um, it wasn't offensive. It wasn't offensive like Steps was offensive. Right? <laughs> like I thought Steps yeah. was actually offensive. So this was actually well, five, six, nice seven, eight is so repetitive and stuff. And um, but this this is kind of more really musical though, in that kind of way. <laughs> well, well, at least Bewitch was singing a song about a roller coaster, and we're on a roller coaster in the film clip. I'm like <laughs> on the beach <laughs> when they're singing about. The country? Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You've obviously not seen the US version of the Bewitch film clip for Roller Coaster when they're on a beach. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been weird. Um, but uh, look, yeah, this song is is a bit of nothing. It's nice. Look, it's a nice thing, and it's if you're a young girl, especially a, a young British girl, yeah, you know, like it's better role models for you than Atomic Kitten. Um, and Sugar Babes or whatever, but, uh, or All Saints or something, but they were just kind of nice, innocent, completely carefree. Uh, they all did synchronised dance moves. Sailor V is, I think, slightly better song. They have that fiddle in songs. It's fine. It's fine. They're the Irish girlfriend. They are the Irish girlfriend, and that's the thing, right? They are the completely unsexualized girl band. Right. And they are, yeah, and so hence their girlfriend, right? And so part of, like... But, and that's the reason I guess I brought the HSC question. It's because we were so far beyond this by totally. now. But, like, listening to it this week, I actually sort of just tried to go, well, this isn't too bad. Again, I've got to bring it up. Um, oh, damn it, I've just lost When did they get back together? Yeah, they got back yeah. together in 2012. So they're the Irish Pixies. Well, I think they got <laughs> back saying that. <laughs> Jesus. I think they got back together with a bunch of other bands back in the day, th- like five. I thought you were going to say they got back together with a bunch of other people because it didn't actually matter who was in <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, like the, the NKTOBSB. Yeah, which is New Kids on the Block and Backstreet Boys. Or oh. McFly and Busted, who became McBusted. Uh, <laughs> or Guns N' Roses. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. But, uh... Look. Sting and cut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, on to our last song of tonight. This song was number one for two weeks as well, from the 29th of November, 1998. And this is Jennifer Page with Crush.
That was Jennifer Page with Crush, number one in 1998. Casey, we're back around to you. Are we? Uh, it's just a little crush. Yes. How do you feel about it? Um, uh, it's just a little thing. Um, <laughs> it's not like everything you do depends on her, so, you know. <laughs> no, that's right. Not everything. We know, we know a guy who apparently it does, but um, we'll come to that later. Um... <laughs> I, I don't mind this for what it is, actually. For, for what it is supposed to do and for what it is uh, attempting to achieve, um, I think it does a pretty damn good job of it. There are always going to be songs like this, um, and some of them are going, you're, you're going to actively hate and some of them are going to pass you by, and some of them you're going to go, oh, that's an all right hook. And this is a, one of the, the latter. This, this is a like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's a pretty good hit hook. I, I see it. It's... Um, you know, it can fade into the background pretty easily. Um, there's not... Uh, it, it's quite innocuous in a lot of ways. There's not a lot to hook onto. There's not a great deal of emotion in it. There's not a lot of, you know, light and shade and ebb and flow and any of that. It just kind of plods along um, and does its thing. But in terms of the hook itself, um, I remember it from the time. And I remember even back then just going, oh, yeah, it's, it's not for me, but it's one of those and it's not that bad. Um... And now every time I've heard it, I've thought exactly the same thing, that, it, that it's just fine for what it is. That, that's me. Tim Byron. All right, so Paul Andrews, if you're listening, when we get the family fold together, I'm quite happy to do a, a cover of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, okay, so let, we have a friend of the podcast, uh, a man named Paul Andrews, who was uh, one of the members of Lazy Susan, which is a band that several of us in this room have played with, uh, who... Loves his song. Let's so. go all the way. At Paul Andrews 2043 on Twitter. If you're Jennifer Bajan listening to this. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think this is a great song. Like, as a song, like, this is some, there's something about it that kind of transcends the sound of it. Like, sound-wise, like, it's a song that reminds me of the kind of thing that happened maybe a couple of years after this. Like, it's like an early version of that kind of Britney Spears or Mandy Moore or Christina Aguilera kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it's got that kind of sound to it rather than the kind of the dance pop of like a wig field or something like that. This is kind of moving into the kind of... So it's probably a reasonably influential song. People could hear music was going in this direction and this is like an early version of it. So I give it credit for that. But yeah, as a song, like, I, I like it. And emotionally, it does have something to it. Like, it's got that kind of... You know, she's singing about it just being a little crush and stuff, but the music is all minor key. And so, like, the, you listen to it and it's got that kind of... Like, a bit of sort of emotional... Uh, like s- complexity or subtlety in it, like where she's singing that it's just a little crush, but she's obviously like slightly uncomfortable with this in in the sound of her vocals and the sound of the song, and and so it like it it is kind of slightly like a moving song in that kind of way, like it it gets at some sort of interesting emotion in a way that to be honest, like none of the other songs from this week do for me whatsoever. So so yeah, so I think this is a great song and. Um, I, I do wonder whether I would think that if I didn't know Paul Andrews and he didn't keep on bringing this song up, but um, <laughs> he, he has, and I paid attention to it, and yeah, I think this is a good song. When it comes on in the car, when we're listening to the 90s mix of the 1,090 songs that we have, like, this is definitely one we don't skip. Tim Coyle. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's pretty decent, and coming as the capper to the end of this week, it was like, you know, this... 
sounded like fucking Man on the Moon to me. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Look, it's really well put together. Her singing is good. I really like the singing in the verses uh, where she's kind of um, um, <clears throat> tripping over the words a bit and doing a really good job of it. And yeah, I, I just think it's it's quite well put together. Some of the stuff Tim Byron mentioned, such as the... Um, the, the way she uses her voice in the chorus um, with the high breathy bits that mm. kind of... When she's dismissing this as just a little crush, it's not necessarily entirely convincing when she does yes. that. It's, it's quite clever. So, yeah, I think it's pretty well put together. It's got a, it's got a little bit of a groove to it. Um, and, yeah, the melody has a degree of sophistication about it, which is entirely without... Not in keeping with what we're covered in the in the podcast so far so yeah. um look i think the paul andrews is taking it to slightly absurd extremes with his devotion to this song but <laughs> you know it's oh paul it's not too bad hey, look i'm i'm a big i'm a like you know there, there are a lot of a lot of strange and sort of like pop singles that I think are like fantastic songs. I mean, I, we talked about one a couple of weeks ago, which is All Saints Pure Shores, which I think is one of the greatest pop singles ever, overloaded by Sugar Babes and stuff like that. Um, this isn't one for me. I, oh, it's I, not one. I think this song is terrible. Oh, um, interesting. Back in the day, so I was working at a record store at this point, and yeah, it just, oh, I don't know, just the worst people like this song. <laughs> you know, and it was just... I don't know. In, in Who are these worst people? The worst... The worst people. The worst people. That what, I so Oswald like Hitler just came in yeah, and Yeah, you know. <laughs> Abbott, when he was, you know, in his mid-twenties. Um, <laughs> no, it was just like a song for just... Look, well, that was back in the day. It was like a song for just not me and... It was, I think, listening to it this week... I softened on it a little bit. I understand that there's probably... Uh, I, th I think the idea that, that I think you said, Tim Coyle, about the, the subtext of the song, you know, is, is quite clever. And all the, all the fucking idiots at my school who liked this song uh, didn't get the subtext or whatever. But it, to the end of this day, this is, for me, uh, as Euro Trash is one in a million by Euphoria. So really? it's it's aimed to that market. It's it's a better song, but it's just a song for not that that's hard. But uh, it's a well, song for awful people is to it, like. Is it and aimed so, at that market? I mean, the thing with Jennifer Page is that her her thing was more the Valley Girl kind of stuff than the Euro Trash thing. And yeah, uh, yeah. But I, yeah. I, I, see, I see what you're saying. In people, Australia, people but, maybe misinterpreted the song as kind of being a Queen Bee rejection or dismissal which it's not but you know that fits in with how she was conveying or how the label was pushing her to her audience i don't know it was only liked by slutty girls and gang rapey guys in my school so it was just is like, that right yeah it was just really <coughs> just sort of dodgy See, i don't remember its popularity in that way i don't yeah, remember no, people who liked yeah. it or anything like oh, that yeah i do i seriously yeah, do no, I totally and don't. Like, but I, I totally know how that colors how you feel about a song but i, I didn't just, have that i grew up in canterbury there was souped up freaking holdens with like things playing this car blaring out of car stereos yeah. Yeah. Right. I just, I just this is finger boys 
Yeah, I, I remember it being there. I don't remember anyone liking it. No, same. Yeah, I don't either. Oh, I, I, knew, I know heaps of people who liked it. And so, hence who that... Who were not Paul Andrews. Who were not Paul Andrews. <laughs> Unless Paul <laughs> Andrews had a souped-up Holden back in the day. Well, we could all envisage <laughs> that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I don't know. So, this song was a bit, like... Uh, uh, and, you know, and Tim Byron made the point about Britney Spears and stuff like that, and it was, it was just heading to that world for me, which... Uh, I well and truly cut out of by now, and it'd be very interesting the next couple of podcasts we're talking mm, about. We're going to go there, yes. Because mm. we were, well, three of us were 19, going on 20 at that point. Tim, you would have been on your last year of high school. So, yeah. you know, we don't feel the way that we did about silly pop songs, songs that get to number one. And, you know, so it's, it's a very interesting thing, but this is definitely a break point for me. Look, Jennifer Page... Do we know anything else? Yeah. She, she, she is a true one-hit wonder. She never had another top 50 single in Australia. Um, looking at uh, like looking at her biography on Wikipedia, she recently co-wrote a song with Smash Mouth called Magic for their 2012 <laughs> album, Magic. Right. And she right. also did a duet with Nick Carter from um, the Backstreet Boys, uh, yeah. I believe. Well, so, so, um, she's so, she's, so she's hanging around the shallow end of the 90s nostalgia pool. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. I'm sure she's on some package tour where she just does like this and some other song and then like gets out of there and someone else comes on, probably like Bewitched or something. Did yeah. she, she wrote this song though? Did she? I don't know. No, 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 no. She didn't no? write this song. It, it had like four co-writers. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a manufactured thing then? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit, pretty manufactured. I think she's just like a singer. So how many tracks are on Flowers by Jennifer Page, the hits collection? <laughs> one half of one play it 12 times the radio edit of one yeah acoustic look, version I mean look she uh, yeah I think fine you know I hope she made some money out of this she had a half decent voice but I just thought the song was kind of terrible but um I don't know I don't know what to feel about her she's okay for, for me it's one of those things where we're at this odd point in chart music in what we've been listening to and whether that's where we were at at the time or the actual songs themselves that that I think I've spoken about it before it's really difficult to get your baseline of where (laughs) kind of where the quality is at and the thing is you know for for me this sounded like sweet relief (laughs) coming after everything else and I don't know whether that's because everything around it was so completely shit in the way that you know, on the pub football team, that you know, the moderately talented guy looks great, whereas if you set him up to play in the Premier League, he's dreadful. But yeah, that's that's the thing. How do you, how do you kind of get your baseline there? I do feel like that 1998, for me at least, I don't know how much of this is that just I was getting a bit older and paying a little less attention to stuff. But like for me, 1998 was a definite decrease in quality. Uh, for me, like, and 1999 was sort of in that same sort of world. Like, the, the the things that I was liking in music had kind of moved on, and, like, there was this new sort of bunch of stuff like Bewitched and Jennifer Page and Britney Spears and things like that that were coming out about this time that were kind of not for me. Like, I was getting too old or something. And so, yeah. for me, I, I look at this, the list of songs and think, uh oh, there was better stuff, like, a year before this. Like, and, and yeah, all the stuff I liked is a bit gone now. But how much of that is just a purely subjective who we are thing with our particular histories? And the thing is, 
people probably five to ten years older than us probably felt the same way about Roxette or the B-52s. Oh, of yeah. course. Definitely. Absolutely. Like, it is totally about our subjective things. Like, you you know, like, because we grew up at the time we did, we tended, up, tended to like particular kind of sounds because they were what were around or they were the things that represented, like, the you know, being against the mainstream at a particular point of, point in time. And for people who are 10 years older than us, um, those sounds are very different. And they like the kind of, you know, the, the pop of the time, like the very sort of synthy kind of stuff in the 80s that sounds horrible to us because we were born when we were. And so, yeah, so it definitely is the case that, like, yeah, the stuff that you like is, you know, is inevitably, like, coloured by when you, when, when you were listening to music and when you got into music and the kind of music that was just the big music at the time. Like, I can even see this in me being just a couple of years younger in yeah. that, um, you know, when I started paying t- mu- attention to music, it was just that little bit later. And so, instead of getting into, like, the kind of rem kind of stuff, like, I was getting into the Smashing Pumpkins instead. You know, there's stuff like that. Yeah. So, basically, if you were a bit younger, you would love this song. Is that what you're saying? It- Maybe, maybe, like maybe it's maybe it's like that, but like I don't know, I don't know how we explain Paul Andrews then because he's old now, old yeah. man Andrews. But, but that's the thing. <laughs> there it is again. Yeah. But, but that's the thing. It's like my wife is slightly younger than me and has very fond memories of this song when yeah. we were kind of playing it around the house this week because just doing my research thing, she heard yeah, right. it was like, oh, this. Yeah. And then my my wife's currently pregnant with her, with our daughter and started actually playing it over over her swelling stomach. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's how attached to this song she is. I was wow. like, stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that brings us to the end of another episode of 90% Hits. Uh, as usual, we'll go around the table and... Uh, see what everyone's favourite song is from the ones that we discussed tonight. Just to recap, we talked about The Goo Goo Dolls with Iris, Lighthouse Family with High, Aerosmith with I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, Bewitched with Roller Coaster, and Jennifer Page with Crush. Tim Byron, how do you feel? Well, for me, the best song is obviously Crush by Jennifer Page, without question. Uh... I would say that it's definitely I don't want to miss a thing. Tim Coyle? Yeah. Crush, because it's all right. Paul Andrews should note that it's only really the competition that means that it's gotten that <laughs> honour. <laughs> Casey Atkins. Definitely don't want to miss a thing by Aerosmith. Oh, a bit of a... It's a dead heat. It's a draw. Bit of a dead heat. Draw. Mm. Uh, those who've been following along at home know that there's one more song for us to talk about in 1998, but we're not going to get to it. Next week, we're going to do our regular Choose Your Own Adventure 1998 where we choose a song that we all actually love that charted in 1998. Uh, and then we there's only two more proper episodes left for us uh, on 90% Hits. So thank you for listening, everyone. And before we go, Casey, do you want to let people know where they can find us on the internet? Uh, not really, because if they haven't found us by now, they're never going to. So, you know, they know. Tim Byron? I'm less interested in talking about the Tumblr thing. I'm more interested in asking, like, what do you guys think is the worst song of these five? Because, like, we're at that point of the 90s where, like, that's actually the harder question. Yeah. Lighthouse Family. Yeah, no Lighthouse question. Family for me. Oh, it's a hard one. Iris, Crush, Roller Yeah. Coaster. Probably Lighthouse Family, but Iris is right yeah, there. For Byron. me, it's Iris. Iris. Yeah, I got, Iris, I like, really. Yeah. See, I, I, the Goo Goo Dolls, just, they supported the replacements, and they were in those things, and they were in Gong Song, and they played with Soul Asylum and You and I, like... That just gives them the smallest possible pass. Yeah. And they used that and Iris was the result. You know, like, it's like they could do so much better if they came from that thing. As much as that song is terrible, 
I, some part of me, I just go, you know what? Hey, you and I, if you did that, fucking there's half a million dollars to you. Fucking, yeah. you did great records before and after. Please, go and actually buy a house in the way that several members of your band have not been able to. Yeah. Uh, so I don't blame the Goo Goo Dolls for doing that. I kind of have. I don't blame that. them either, but like, I don't like the song, so you, you don't know. have to like the song because of it. I don't yeah. have to like no. the song just because they have a house or don't have yeah, a house. It's, 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 it's happened either way. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not a personal thing about John Resnick, who I'm sure is a very decent man, but yeah. Well, I guess I give him the pass because he's a decent man, and like, he's just like, go and just, you know, go, go and sell out, like, make some money because it's hard for bands like that to do it. So he mm. he owns more than Soul Asylum and Jayhawks and all those other bands that he do it with, and you and I. So Soul yeah. Asylum would have done perfectly fine out of Runaway Train, though. Uh, yeah, I would yeah. say so. Kinda, but not really. Yeah, it's it's not the late. It's not on, not to the same degree. I mean, mm. this song is still played on on Triple M or uh, on radio, so they're still getting royalties. And I reckon a number Whereas one Runaway Train. That, I haven't heard that on radio. I reckon a number ever. one single, a number one album at least in uh, America in two thousand in nineteen ninety four would probably be about three hundred million. A number one album in 1998 was 600 million. Like, it is... Mm. We're at the point where the music industry was making more money than it ever saw before. Mm. So... Or ever saw again. And would ever see again. So... <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yeah. So, so so sort of at the late 90s, like at the point we're talking about, it's almost like, um, you know, like this is like the the end days of like the Empire in a kind of way before. Like, oh, it's, it's so the end days. Well, yeah. This yeah. kind of figures out with the classic decline of an Empire thing. It's great yeah. wealth, great wealth and decadence. Yeah, yeah. We're in the decadent. We're really, really in the decadent state, aren't we? The decadence that and that enables... Um, kind of precedes the the actual collapse. That's exactly yeah, yeah. what happened. People didn't recognise what was going on. Well, okay, thank you, Tim Byron, for that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we're out. So, and just the last thing as usual. If anyone knows what happened to Mary, she listened to Iris. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't want the world to see her. <laughs> so. and, and and she went up on a um on a rocket to try and stop an asteroid from. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then she gave her life, gave her life to save the planet. Okay. Uh, just yeah. Like iron, iron well, giant. If you can confirm any of that, let us know. <laughs> she just got so high in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see you next week. This is the time we're in. But it's a remake of... Uh, Wings of Desire. Wings of Desire, yeah. right? Which, yeah, I love which that is an film. amazing film. The Vin Vendors film had a degree of wit about it and oh, yeah. a bit a bit of whimsy about it where Hollywood got its claws into it and just ramped up the romantic side and just kind of made it this big, tragic 
Titanic-esque love story. And cast mm. Nicolas and, Cage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and cast a guy whose greatest claim to fame is running around in a bear suit um, <laughs> in, in, in the, as Come the on. leading man. So. I wouldn't call John Travolta's face a bear suit. <laughs> um, <laughs> 